0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 70 of the Bible Reading Podcast, our big Bible question of the day, why were women the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and what difference does it make? So we're going to be talking about a little bit of first century sexism today, and we're also going to cover a good Bible translation question. So welcome to the show. A welcome respite from all of the coronavirus news going around and filled with enough good scripture today to encourage and edify our souls. I want to encourage you, as always, to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I also want to ask you... To share this show, share this episode in any episode on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. We want to get as many people reading along in the scriptures with us as possible. And the best way to do that is to share the show on social media and share the show in person. Just stay six feet away from everybody and be sure to bow when you're doing it instead of shaking their hands. So today's passages include Exodus 21, Job 39 Luke 24 and 2 Corinthians 9. I went back and forth for a long time, way longer than usual over the topic for today's show. I have done the show for 70 days in a row now, and I think there's really only one day where I spent longer than 5 minutes trying to think, "Gosh, what what topic should I could I possibly do the show on today?" The fact of the matter is almost every time I really think about it, there's so many topics to pick, which one should I pick? Well, today was one of those days. I went back and forth. I strongly considered and actually even began writing an article on Jesus's command in Luke 24 to the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. I also almost talked about Paul's command in 2 Corinthians 9 to give, but ultimately I just couldn't get away from the allure of talking about the resurrection again. This is my favorite thing to talk about. I think it's the biggest thing in history. So it's just, uh, that's today's focus. And it's honestly just hard not to focus on the greatest event in history every time you encounter it in the Bible. With lots of fear going around because of this current pandemic scare, I'm grateful that no matter how bad this situation gets or any situation, those who are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we have the powerful, wonderful promise of eternal life in him. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done, because he lives. We who follow him will live and not perish. That is great hope. It's great hope for those of us that still live, and it's great hope for those of us who live and grieve people who have gone on ahead of us. If they were in Christ, they are in the best hands possible. Praise his name. The resurrection is the antidote for all of our fears, fears for ourselves and fears for those who have gone on ahead of us. By the way, today's episode is uh, a two-parter, maybe three, but I think just two, because I just couldn't drop two straight 40-minute episodes on on you guys. That just seems awfully rude. I know yesterday's was long, but I want to tell you, if you missed it, it may have been my favorite one we've done so far. I loved writing it. I loved reading about it. Uh I guess I loved recording it just fine, but the writing and the research was the really fun thing. So if you missed it, I know it was long. But maybe worth your while. And so much good scripture in there. I mean, who cares about what I have to say? But the scripture in there is really eye-opening and amazing. So selections from today's show are from my book, Easter Fact or Fiction, 20 Reasons to Believe Jesus Rose from the Dead. That book is available on Amazon. And I gotta tell you this, every time you buy a copy of that book on Amazon, I myself personally make a little over $2, just short of $3, like $2.60 or something like that, which is just enough to buy my precious children, and there's five of them, two rolls of toilet paper. Or it would be enough to buy my precious children two rolls of toilet paper if every store in Salinas wasn't sold out of toilet paper. I'm kind of tempted to do an episode that attempts to castigate toilet paper hoarders, but honestly, I can't really find a scripture on that for some reason. Go figure. I do have a message, though, for you uh toilet paper hoarders. Stop! We all need toilet paper. You don't have to hoard it all. There's enough to go around. I don't think we're going to go through a toilet paper crisis in this current situation. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I don't think it's going to hit us in the toilet paper if you catch my drift. So here's a good question that was left on the BibleReadingPodcast.com blog a few days ago from our old friend Willem Dykstra, who I believe is from Minnesota, Hope it's not too cold up there, Willem, about my choice of the CSB for the primary uh, Bible reading podcast Bible version. Willem writes, Hi, Chase. I'm just curious. Why is it that you use the CSB, Christian Standard Version? Or at least, why do you use it in your Bible reading podcast? Up until the podcast, I'd never heard of that version. I did just a little Googling and only remembered from my Googling that it seems to be an updated version of the HCSB. And then Willem goes on to talk about some of his past experiences with various Bible translations. I'm going to skip a little bit of that and until we get to this point. He says, fast forward to the time I am now married and living in Minnesota, attending Dr. John Piper's church. How cool is that? I would love to go to Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist. I remember that he felt very strongly about the ESV and said this would be the last and best version he would ever use in our church, both campuses at that time only used the ESV from then on and I've been using it ever since. Anyway, sorry if I just wrote too much info here and and he continues. So he's wondering why it is that we use the CSB. What a great question, Willem. And and honestly, if there's an area where I uh, differ from Dr. John Piper, probably (laughs) you should go with Piper instead of me. Um, but, but let me give you a background of the decision. I'm afraid the answer isn't going to be uh, extremely satisfying, but we can talk a little bit about Bible translations while we talk about it. So I've been a Christian for... Not quite 40 years now, but I've been in church for a little longer than 40 years, and so I kind of wrote a list of the Bible translations like you did that I've favored over the years. So in the 1970s, if I recall pretty well, uh, we started out with a King James version of the Bible plus the Living Bible. That was a real popular one. We had that uh, green hardback Living Bible in my household when I was a kid with the poofy cover, which uh, was a classic classic if you grew up in the 70s. I'm sure some of you that are old like me have seen it. You say, well, the Living Bible, that wasn't the greatest translation. Actually, it was more of a paraphrase. But just remember, I was a kid. I didn't know. But from the 1980s to roughly the early 2000s or the late 90s, I used the 1984 edition of the New International Version. Most of the scripture I memorized and read when I was a kid was in the 1984 NIV. In the late 90s, however, I came across a new translation that I really, really liked, And that was the 1995 updated NASB. As far as I could tell, and this was when I was in seminary at the time, uh For my first go around, as far as I could tell, the 95 updated NASB was the best uh in terms of most accurate word-for-word translation out there that was still fairly readable. Now, the older NASB was also a really good word-for-word translation, but it was a little wooden and a little not a great preaching Bible, even though it was a great word-for-word translation. So for several years, I sort of oscillated back and forth between that updated NASB and the 1984 NIV, went back and forth with them. One of the things that uh, Willem mentioned in his letter was how the NIV sort of went gender neutral in the mid-2000s. And it did, and I didn't think that was a good translation decision. But fortunately, they reversed it with the release of the 2011 NIV, which I think is a really solid translation. Like Piper, I favored the ESV from shortly after it came out in 2008 to right around 2013 or 2014. So for several years, that was my primary preaching Bible. I still think it's one of the best translations that's ever been made in the English language. It's fantastic. It's a great combination of uh, word for word accuracy with the biblical Greek and Hebrew, but it's also uh, a little, it flows a little better, it reads a little better than even the updated NASB. Now in 2013, 14, or 15 or so, I began to make a slow transition from mainly preaching with the ESV to mainly preaching with the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And I think the Holman is my current favorite translation. And really the reason for that is it's, I think, and and look, I'm no Greek scholar. I've had a lot of uh, New Testament Greek, but I'm far from a a Greek scholar. But as near as I can tell, it really is as accurate, really close to as accurate a word-for-word translation as the updated NASB and the ESV. But it's also a little smoother. It reads a little better. My kids understand it a little better. My church understands it a little better. And it also, I'll talk about this in a second, it also uses the name Yahweh for the name of God. And I really prefer that. So that gets to your question. Why the CSB for the Bible Reading Podcast? And the almost sad answer is, Honestly, I spent about five minutes thinking about it, and the reason I chose the CSB is because I thought that more readers would have it, since it came out in 2017, and it's really been pushed pretty hard, than the HCSB, which, again, is still my favorite translation. Now, really, the biggest difference I see between the Christian Standard Bible and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and if you notice, the names are pretty similar, well, the CSB... Uh, is an update. It's the newest version of the HCSB. So both Bibles, very, very similar. But the biggest difference is the Holman maintains the translation of the Tetragrammaton, the four letter Hebrew personal name of God, as Yahweh, whereas the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, uses capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So in the Holman, the Psalm 8318 reads, may they know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. And in the CSB, it re- reads, may they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, capital L O R D, it really stands out in the Bible, are the most high over the whole earth. Now, I personally believe the best way to translate the name of God from the Bible, the personal name of God from Exodus 3, is Yahweh, even though we really don't know exactly how to translate it but i don't believe that using capital l o r d is wrong i think it's i think both translations are okay um i just slightly prefer the holman but i use the csb because i think more of our listeners use the csb you know what though i could be wrong so if you're a listener I'd love to hear from you with a comment on the blog or an email or something on social media or whatever. Uh, what is your favorite translation and why? And maybe we'll do an upcoming episode where we kind of read through your your um, reasons and we talk about Bible translations, because honestly, I find it a field that a lot of Christians don't really think about or don't really know about, but it's, it's worth talking about. It could be very interesting. Not nearly as interesting, though, as today's big Bible question, which is all about the women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Now this, my friends, is a big deal because the testimony of women was not viewed favorably in the 1st century. That's not my fault. Don't blame me. I'm I'm not the source of that sexism. I'm just telling you about it. And the fact is all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Feature these women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. That's massively significant historically. I believe it offers solid corroboration to the authenticity of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Ask yourself this. Why in the world would you have women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus if you're fabricating a story or if you're legendizing a story? A lot of people will say, oh, the the Bible, it was not written by first century eyewitnesses. It was changed by Constantine. And the Bible we have today has been changed billions of times by church leaders in the first few centuries. Well, number one, that's just garbage. There's no evidence of that. I mean, I'm serious. There's just no evidence of that. If you believe that to be the case, I'd love to see your textual evidence of that, not just the speculation of some skeptic that thinks he knows. Because the fact of the matter is we have thousands of Greek manuscripts and you don't see evidence of such things. And my question is this. If... As many modern skeptics claim, the early church initially viewed Jesus as merely a teacher, and then later, much later, way after the resurrection or way after the crucifixion, they started to add in the story of him resurrecting. My question would be, why in the world did they add in the part about the women being witnesses? Because that doesn't make any sense if you're making up a story or if you're inflating a story. The only sensible reason rationally, to feature women as prominently as the first witnesses of the biggest event in history is if they really were the first witnesses of the biggest event in history. One thing I noticed yesterday in uh, the reading of Luke 23, something that I'd honestly really glossed over in the past, is that the women were not only witnesses of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, but they were also very close and careful eyewitnesses of the burial of Jesus. So Luke twenty-three fifty-five and 56 yesterday that we read said, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb, and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It should be noted that for one to argue that the early church fabricated the resurrection of Jesus, one has to commit to the very same sexism that many of the men of the first century and today were quite guilty of. That is to say, they must disparage the testimony of these women. So consider the words of Josephus and Strabo. Uh, Josephus was a well-known is a well-known Jewish uh, Roman historian of the 1st century and Strabo was a notable 1st century Roman sexist philosopher. So jo- Josephus says this, "Let not a single witness be credited but two or but three or two at the least and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives." But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony in account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak the truth. Hey, there's a little bit of sexism and classism there for you. Uh, Josephus, I don't think I agree with that, um, we're not going to hear the testimony of women because, uh, because they're women is essentially what he's saying. Well, Strabo is worse. Strabo says in dealing with a crowd of women, at least, or with any promiscuous mob, a philosopher cannot influence them by reason or exhort them to reverence piety, piety and faith. Nay, there is a need of religious fear also, and this cannot be aroused without myths and marvels. Okay, so Strabo, not a Christian, first century Roman philosopher, is saying you can't really reason with women without giving them myths and marvels, marvels because there is, um unreasoning is a promiscuous mob. Eek. And you know what? They weren't the only ones either. I have a lot more of these in my book, Easter Factor Fiction. I'll cover a couple more here. Consider the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a compilation of the Jewish oral law that was actively used by the scribes and the Pharisees during the first century and is not the word of God. One of the rabbis written within the, the Mishnah testifies that uh, due to their um mis- minstrel issues, quote, women are not competent witnesses to be relied on. They are not halakhically admissible as reliable witnesses. In other words, they're ceremonially unclean, so they aren't good witnesses in the Jewish courts of the time. And look, there are many more examples than just those. And I imagine... Some of you are probably pretty rightly mad right now. I want to point out to you that's not the view of the Bible. Uh, that's, that's the view of some of these non-Christians from the first century. So let me just sneak in one more of these. This one is from a 2nd century guy named Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher, and he was an adamant opponent of Christianity who debated uh Justin Mar- Mar- Martyr. He lived in the 2nd century, like I said, and this is what he said in answer to Justin Martyr telling him about the resurrection. He said, But we must examine this question whether anyone who really died ever rose again with the same body. Or do you think that the stories of these others really are the legends which they appear to be, and yet that the ending of your tragedy is to be regarded as noble and convincing? His cry from the cross when he expired in the earthquake and the darkness, while he was alive he did not help himself, but after death he rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced? But who saw this, says Celsus? A historical, a hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery, who either dreamt in a certain state of mind and through wishful thinking had a hallucination due to some mistaken notion, or, which is more likely, wanted to impress the others by telling this fantastic tale, and so by this cock-and-bull story to provide a chance for other beggars. In other words, Celsus' major attack on the validity of the resurrection account is that it was first witnessed and propagated by a hysterical woman and another, quote, one of those who was deluded by the same sorcery. On behalf of women everywhere, I'm offended for you. Be reminded that, though this backwards attitude towards women was staggeringly rampant in the first century, that was not the case with Jesus, the apostles, nor the early church. Perhaps you've imagined that the Jesus team consisted of Jesus and the twelve disciples, and only those 13 went around from city to city healing the sick and sharing the good news. You'd be partly right, but the Jesus team was actually quite a bit larger as we've discussed before, as there was a number, the Bible actually says many women that also traveled with Jesus and had a critical role on the team, paying for lodging and expenses and taking care of Jesus and the guys. Jesus was radical. In the way he treated women, having multiple deep individual encounters with women at a time, which when it would be, you know, kind of scandalously inappropriate for a rabbi to have a one-on-one conversation with a female. Jesus ignored those conventions because they weren't the word of God. They were the tradition of sexist humans at the time. I want to give you a challenge if you're a skeptic. Compare the New Testament to any other document of antiquity from the first, second, third, fourth, fifth century, and you will find that the New Testament was radically forward-thinking in terms of its ethos of women. To be sure, in many cases, women were treated quite poorly in the earliest centuries and were viewed in a way that really does not comport with our modern reality. I would add many other quotes to demonstrate this historical fact, but it's not really necessary to make the primary and pertinent point here. That is, having a female witness to something monumental in the first century might be a little inconvenient to say the least, for the first century church. As Josephus noted above, there were many cultures in antiquity where a woman was not allowed to testify in court. In other ancient cultures, they might have been allowed to testify, but their testimony would not have carried as much weight as the testimony of a man. In some of those situations where women were actually allowed to testify, it would take the testimony of two women to override the testimony of one man. Why is such a cultural issue critical in discussing the resurrection of Jesus? Because according to Matthew 28, Luke 24, the first two witnesses to the risen Jesus were women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Luke tells us that Joanna was there as well, as were other women, and seems to indicate that the other Mary was Mary, the mother of James. So all four Gospels written down by different guys at different times, in different places, all feature at least one female, in some cases many, who were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And beloved friends, that's significant that means something. When somebody says to me, oh, the early church added to the scriptures, I say, I don't think so. And here's some good evidence for it. Maybe you have some evidence to uh, say against it. And they don't because there is no uh, paleographical evidence of such a thing. I don't believe the first century church Legendized the resurrection of Jesus. I believe they saw it. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there were 500 plus witnesses to that fact. So I consider it a well testified Fact of history. And one of the reasons I do is because of these women. We're going to talk about that more tomorrow, but that's enough for today. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow. For now, let's get into the rest of our Bible readings today, starting with Exodus chapter 21, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. These are the ordinances that you are to set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to the master, and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I don't want to live as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door to doorpost, his master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing to her master who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has acted treacherously towards her. Or if he chooses her for his son, he must deal with her according to the customary treatment of daughters. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. "'Whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. "'But if he did not intend any harm, and yet God allowed it to happen, "'I will appoint a place for you where he may flee. "'If a person schemes and willfully acts against his neighbor to murder him, "'you must take him from my altar to be put to death. "'Whoever strikes his father or his mother must be put to death. "'Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, "'whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession.' Whoever curses his father or mother must be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist and the injured man does not die but is confined to bed, if he can later get up and walk around outside leaning on his staff, then the one who struck him will be exempt from punishment. Nevertheless, he must pay for his lost work time and provide for his complete recovery. When a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies under his abuse, the owner must be punished, however, if the slave can stand up after a day or two, The owner should not be punished because he is his owner's property. When men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, Foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. When a man strikes the eye of his male or female slaves and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned, and its meat may not be eaten, but the ox's owner is innocent. However, if the ox was in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned yet does not restrain it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox must be stoned, and its owner must also be put to death. If instead a ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption price for his life in the full amount demanded from him. If it gores or son a son or daughter, he is to be dealt with according to the same law. If the ox gores a male or female slave, he must give thirty shekels of silver to the slave's master, and the ox must be stoned. When a man uncovers a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must give compensation." He must pay to its owner, but the dead animal will become his. When a man's ox injures his neighbor's ox and it dies, they must sell the live ox and divide its proceeds. They must also divide the dead animal. It is, however, if, however, it is known that the ox was in the habit of goring, yet the owner has not restrained it, he must compensate fully, ox for ox, the dead animal will become his. Job 39 Do you know when mountain goats give birth? Have you watched the deer in labor? Can you count the months they are pregnant, so you can know the time they give birth? They crouch down to give birth to their young. They deliver their newborn. Their offspring are healthy and grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return. Who set the wild donkey free? Who released the swift donkey from its harness? I made the desert its home and the salty wasteland its dwelling. It scoffs at the noise of the village and never hears the shouts of a driver. It roams the mountains for its pasture land, searching for anything green. Would the wild ox be willing to serve you? Would it spend the night by your feeding trough? Can you hold the wild ox to a furrow by its harness? Will it plow the valleys behind you? Can you depend on it because its strength is great? Would you leave it to do your hard work? Can you trust the wild ox to harvest your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but are her feathers in plumage like the storks? She abandons her eggs on the ground and lets them be warmed in the sand. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly, as if they were not her own, with no fear that her labor may have been in vain, for God has deprived her of wisdom. He has not endowed her with understanding. When she proudly spreads her wings, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Do you give strength to the horse? Do you adorn his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His proud snorting fills one with terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He charges into battle. He laughs at fear since he is afraid of nothing. He does not run from the sword. A quiver rattles at his side along with a flashing spear and a javelin. He charges ahead with trembling rage. He cannot stand still at the trumpet sound. When the trumpet blasts, he snorts defiantly. He smells the battle from a distance. He hears the officer shout and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your understanding and spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? It lives on a cliff where it spends the night. Its stronghold is on a rocky crag. From there it searches for prey. Its eyes penetrate the distance. Its brood gulps down blood. And where the slain are, it is there. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus.' While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. "'Why are you looking for the living among the dead?' asked the men. "'He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, "'It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, "'be crucified, and rise on the third day.' And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Mm-hmm. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only little linen clothes, so he went away amazed at what had happened. Now the same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you are having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Aren't you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, "'The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a pow- prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel.' Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? he asked them. Why do doubts rise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and look, I'm sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high." Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshipping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Second Corinthians 9, verse 1. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it's unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians came with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame, in that. Situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he decided in his heart not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, He distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What a great place to end. And I'll just agree with that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God bless you, my friends, and Godspeed to you.